The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, I want to greet all of you personally. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at City Rev, and So glad to be either in your living room or bedroom or maybe you're listening to the audio. Wherever it is, whether you have children running all around, we're just glad you're here and that you've made this a part of your weekend. I want to let you know that we are concluding our series, The Power of Awe. We've been looking at Psalm 111 and 112 in this series. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Psalm 111 is where we're going to start our time. And I just want to start by introducing kind of the general theme of where we're going. We're going to talk today about the, the relationship between awe and resilience. And how awe, our awe of God, produces this resilient faith in us. That no matter what's happening, whatever obstacles we may come up against, there's this steadiness. And when I think of the word resilience, and I was just thinking about this earlier today, of this idea of resilience, the first image that came to mind is that of my one-and-a-half-year-old son, Levi, and his relationship to food. Uh, Levi is this uh, incredible little boy who, the moment he started walking, one of the very first things that Levi would do is he would run to wherever our food was. And he used his mobility uh, to access food. He loves food. He's passionate about it. He's also in particularly passionate about bars, granola bars. And we have a place in our house, uh, in our pantry, where we keep our granola bars. And we've made the foolish error of keeping our granola bars on the lower part of the pantry where it's easily accessible for his little hands to reach and access. And, and our pantry happens to be one of those pantries that it, it's like a push to open. So it requires some fine motor skills and some muscle for a one and a half year old. But he finds a way to get in. And no matter where we put the bars or if we see him over there, we move him to another place. He makes his way back. He will not be stopped. In fact, uh, I'll be playing with him sometimes. We'll be playing in another room. I'll turn around for a moment, turn back around, and he'll be gone. Chances are he's by the pantry looking for a bar. This is just who he is. And so when I think of resilience, I think of that picture of someone who just won't see any obstacle as something that's going to keep them from going where it is that they want to go. And so what we're going to do is look here at Psalm 111 and 112 and talk about with some adult lenses, some bigger circumstances than our relationship to food. I'm really hopeful that that resilience in Levi's life is going to translate to other areas of his life. But we're going to talk about how awe, an awe of God, really inspires a resilience, a steadiness, and a firmness. And so we're going to start by reading Psalm 111. I'm going to ask my lovely wife, Amy, to go ahead and read Psalm 111 for us. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. 
He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Wonderful. Psalm 111 is this reflection on the works of the Lord, what he's done, and concluding from what God has done, certain attributes of his character. So we read in that chapter that God is gracious, that he's merciful, that he's trustworthy. We read that his name is holy and awesome. So this psalm, Psalm 111, is really all about what God is like. It's drawing conclusions about the nature of God, reflecting on his majesty and his splendor. But then Psalm 112 kind of goes with it in an interesting way. And so just as Psalm 111 begins with this line, praise the Lord, Psalm 112 also begins with the same exact line, praise the Lord. Not only that, but these are also acrostic poems. So they're in alphabetical order. Each line is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. They're both acrostic poems. Additionally, when you look at these uh, poems side by side, there's incredible correspondence. So it's uh, apparent to us that there's some relationship between these two. And so if Psalm 111 is about what God is like, Psalm 112 is really about what does the person who walks in the fear of God look like? What does the person who's in awe of God look like? What describes their character? What attributes would you use to describe the person who is in awe of this God that was just described in Psalm 111? And so I'm going to read for us a few verses here in Psalm 112. And then from there, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of awe and resilience. So look with me, Psalm 112, verse 4. Here's what the author writes. He writes, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Jump down to verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Just consider for a moment the words we just read. We read, described, that the person who fears the Lord, who has this power of awe at work in their heart, that they aren't moved. They're not shaken. That the nature of their life, when they come up against darkness, that's when the dawn rises. That if you're describing the person who is walking in the fear of the Lord, a description of them is that when they receive bad news, they're not afraid. Now just imagine with me for a moment if this could describe your life. Imagine with me getting bad news, receiving bad news, and this actually being an accurate description of how you go about your life. I know in my own life, I examine my life, and I say, I would want something like this. And also I want you to know, it's describing here the blessed person. The opening line of Psalm 112 is, uh, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So this is a blessed person. And notice, the blessed person, just like any other person, goes through darkness. It's not that the blessed person doesn't go through darkness. It's that when they go through darkness, that's when the dawn rises. It's that the blessed person who walks in the fear of the Lord, they have a different perspective on their darkness. So just consider for a moment, two people going through the same set of circumstances. Two people, maybe both of them lost their job. Both of them have the same set of circumstances. They're both receiving the same set of bad news. 
What this passage is claiming is that if one of them has a fear of the Lord, an awe of God, is captivated by God in that way, if one of them has that, their approach to that circumstance will be very different than the way the other person approaches that same, that same exact situation. Their way of viewing it, their outlook will be altogether different. They'll see it with different eyes and through a different lens. And what I just want to invite you into is that Psalm 112 is true. This kind of resilience is available to us. It's been made accessible to us through God. And in a moment, we're going to see exactly how God has made that kind of resilience available to us. But I just want to start here. Whether you're someone who's listening and you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you're not sure what you believe. I mean, all of us want this. All of us want this sense of no matter what's happening, I have a firmness. My heart is steady. I won't be shaken. And so here in this passage, it shows us the way to how we can experience this. You know, I've been thinking about this message for a few weeks and just kind of watching what's been happening in our world. And then in particular this week, uh, I've just become keenly aware that we really don't have to use much imagination to think of situations where there is bad news. You know, there are, there are seasons in our lives where sometimes things are pretty normal and we can just kind of forget that there's a lot of pain in the world. We get in our routine or we get used to what's happening and we're just in our zone of normalcy and we forget that there's a world of pain and injustice and hurt. We're not in one of those seasons. Uh, just this week, our nation passing 100,000 people who have lost their lives from coronavirus. Uh, reports of tens of millions of people who don't have their jobs, who are struggling, concerned for their families, not sure how they're going to provide. We have messages from food banks who are sounding the alarm in cities across our nation who are in an urgent need. There's Christ, people waiting to get food, to provide food for their families. And then on top of all of that, just this week, the news Wednesday morning, waking up to the news of George Floyd, a man, a human being made in the image of God with value and worth and dignity. And our, our entire nation saw on video someone being senselessly killed, treated as less than human. We don't have to imagine bad news. We've seen it. We've seen evil. We've seen pain. We've seen brokenness. And so we need in our nation, in our lives, we need God. We need God to heal us. We need God to heal our land. We need God to bring peace where there's brokenness. And so Psalm 111, Psalm 112, they show us the way. They show us the way of peace. They show us the way of justice. And so with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to how Psalm 112 outlines this and the interaction between these two chapters to demonstrate how this kind of faith that doesn't waver but is steadfast and steady can be your faith. You know, when I read verses like Psalm 112 verse 7 that says, that the blessed person, the person who fears the Lord, is not afraid of bad news. Or read verses like verse 6 where it says the righteous will never be moved. And it's tempting to just turn these into like sheer willpower statements. 
It's tempting to just say, okay, well, I'm just, the next time bad news comes, I will not be afraid. I've decided. It's settled. It's not going to happen. And that's just not the way it works. You can't just settle. You know what? I have decided I am not going to be shaken by a difficulty anymore. That's not the way this works, and that's not what this passage is teaching. No more can an apple tree decide one day it wants to produce apples, or wants to produce bananas. An apple tree produces apples because it's in its DNA to produce that fruit. If we want bananas, we need a different set of DNA, something altogether different on the inside, a different coating. And this is what Jesus offers us by the new birth that he came to pronounce. He said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And this new life that Jesus offers, this new life following after him, he makes available to us a resilience so that we can produce this kind of fruit. And so, the person who walks in the fear of the Lord, let's talk a little bit about what we mean by this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Another way of translating that word fear is the word awestruck, to be in awe, to be captivated by. And so here's what I want you to think about when you think about the fear of the Lord. Write this down. It's the first, the first item for your notes. Number one, the person who walks in the fear of the Lord is captivated by the greatness, goodness, and nearness of God. They're captivated by the greatness, goodness, and nearness of God. Just consider verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 111. The author says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. I love these descriptions. It describes God in splendor and majesty. The author says, Great are the works of the Lord. And he has such an interesting observation here. The line right under it is that those who are delighting in the works of God will study the works of God. There's this reflex that we have that what we delight in, we study. And so just a simple example from my own life. Uh, recently, I, I was able to experience the glory of a Texas smoked beef brisket. And it was incredible. And it made me really sad that there really isn't anything like it down here in South Florida. I mean, you can't get brisket in that way. And uh, I, I remember after just being completely captivated by the experience that was happening on my taste buds while eating that smoked beef brisket, uh, I remember going and just doing all sorts of research. Like, okay, they have to have some special magical pepper. Because the, the flavor on this brisket was just unreal. So I start researching, like, is there special pepper that they use in Texas? I started looking at, okay, what wood do they use to smoke the beef? Is that special smoke? I started looking into it. This is a reflex we have. It's instinctual. What we're captivated by, what we delight in, we study. And the person who fears the Lord... The person who's in awe of God and this is at work in their life, they are studying God. They become students of Him. They want to learn more about Him. They study His greatness. And with a view of His greatness, because we're captivated by how big and immense and holy and awesome He is, because of that, our minds are filled with thoughts of Him so that whatever's happening around us, we see those things through the lens of the, the Great One who sustains us, who's carrying us, who's with us, who's working out his purposes in our life. We're not only captivated by the greatness of God, we're also captivated, captivated by his goodness. Look at the next few verses. Verses 4 through 5 of chapter 111. It says, He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered 
The Lord is gracious and merciful. Go ahead and repeat those two words with me. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Drop down to verse 7. It says, The works of, the, of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. I love these descriptions of God. So it's not just that God is big and powerful and mighty. He is, but he's also good. He's also kind and gracious and merciful. He's also the one who provides for his children. He's good, and the person who fears the Lord is captivated by the goodness of God and is thinking about and meditating on the goodness of God. I, I want you to think about this idea of being captivated. It's more than just intellectual knowledge. It's intellectual knowledge at least, but it's also internal desire. It's heartfelt devotion. It's, it's, yes, intellectual, but it's also emotional. It works down deep in the recesses of who we are. We're captivated by God's goodness, and this comes to a head in the person of Jesus. Think about this for a moment, this idea of Psalm 111 describing what God is like and Psalm 112 describing what the person who fears God is like. Uh, See, these two chapters together uniquely describe one person. They describe Jesus. Psalm 111 tells us what God is like. We want to know what God is like. We look at Jesus. He is God. He is the Almighty. He is the Word of God. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And if we want to know what it looks like to be a person who walks in the fear of the Lord and goes through difficult circumstances and navigates difficulty, if we want to know what a person who does that in the fear of the Lord, we look at Jesus. Because he's God become flesh. He's a human. He became flesh. He's God and he's man and he lived among us and he set this example for us to follow. And so Jesus uniquely and perfectly lived his life, conducted his life while on earth as a man walking in the fear of the Lord. Demonstrating to us and this Jesus is so gracious and so merciful that he would give his life to reconcile and restore us to God so that through him we can also be called sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus, by trusting in what he's done. The goodness of God, it captivates us. We just can't get over it. One of the phrases we say often around here is that we've been rescued by Jesus and we haven't recovered. We can't get over it. It's just not something we've moved on from. It's just overwhelming. And so it captivates us. We reflect on the goodness of God. And then we reflect on his nearness. So we're captivated by the greatness, goodness, and nearness of God. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 111. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Now in the Old Testament, their paradigm for redemption was the Exodus story. The Exodus story, this great redemption that God worked in their midst when he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, set them free, delivered them to a promised land, set up a new kingdom under his reign. And that paradigm of redemption, I want you to think about what it was. It was a group of people, the the nation of Israel, enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. 
And they cry out to God and they call out to God saying, God, please deliver us, save us. And so what does God do? He sends a messenger. He sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses leads the people out of slavery. God is not distant from his people. He's near. He hears our cries. He understands our pain and he enters in. In fact, Moses points us to the greater deliverer, Jesus, who stepped in when we were slaves to sin, when we were slaves to the idols that control our affections, the the desires of our heart that rule our lives away from God. Jesus stepped in, came near to us. God has sent redemption. And when we're captivated by the nearness of God, Not just that he is great and that he's good, although that would be enough, but that he is with me. Like even now as I am preaching this message, I'm trying to think about and wrap my mind around the fact that God is with me. As you guys are singing, and as you are playing your instrument, God is with you. And as you're on your couch maybe trying to wrestle your four-year-old back down and help them get situated or in your car listening to this or wherever. Like God is with you. I want you to think about a time when you've been either in a social gathering or maybe a conference, uh, a party, a place where there's a group of people, basically the kind of place we haven't all been to in a very long time. Uh, But I want you to envision being in one of those places and imagine with me That in that place is someone that you either deeply admire, respect, maybe someone in your field that you have like been following their work for years, or someone famous, uh, a famous sports uh, athlete. Just imagine someone of significance that you're a little bit overwhelmed that you're in the same room as this person. Now, I've been in such environments before. I'm currently in one with my wife here. I'm in awe right now. So, but I, I want you to think about for a moment... Uh, I want you to think about for a moment what that environment was like for you. And here's what happens inevitably. That we'll be out in somewhere in that room. We'll be having conversations with people. But at the same time, we're keenly aware of what the person that we're admiring is actually doing as well. And so we like have eyes on the back of our head and know who they're talking to. Or if we can't quite see them, we're having conversations with people and we're like talking to them. But we're also kind of like peering over our shoulder, looking all over the place to wonder where they are. You might be in the buffet line getting chicken or fish being asked by the person who's serving and you say, oh, I'll take the fish. But what you're actually thinking about is, I wonder if he's noticing me. I wonder if she's noticing me. I wonder if they see what I'm doing. And your mind is there. Though you're talking to other people, though you're not necessarily right in front of them, your mind is on them. There's a sense to the fear of the Lord. What it means to be captivated by the nearness of God is that you just kind of always have this sense he's in the room. When we're walking in the fear of the Lord, we, we might be doing dishes, or doing the laundry, or at work, or in a class. We might be doing the most menial thing, or we might be listening to a message. But to walk in the fear of the Lord is this sense that, yes, I'm, I'm right now doing this, but God is with me, and he's the greater reality, and my attention is, is actually mostly on what he thinks of me, and I, I wonder what he sees in me, and our consumption, our brain is just wrapped around this idea that God is in the room. To be in the fear of the Lord is to be captured in this way. I want you to notice Psalm 112, verse 7. Psalm 112, verse 7 
It says this, he is not afraid of bad news. This is talking about the person who fears the Lord. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Now here's what's interesting about that verse. The word fear there, you might circle that in your Bibles. He is not afraid of bad news. That word that we translate into afraid is the same word, the same root word in Hebrew that we use to translate the fear of the Lord. So when we're talking about having an awe of God, this verse, using that same word, you might read this saying, he is not in awe of bad news. His mind is not captivated by bad news. This is not describing some kind of like stoic, emotionless, like you receive terrible news and you're just kind of like, okay. You know, that's not what this is describing. It's describing realism. But at the same time, you might be emotional about it, but you're not captivated by it. You might be saddened by it and mourning it and grieving it and processing through it, but it has not gotten you awestruck. Our awe of God is too busy clouding out any room for us to be awed and walking in the fear of some bad news. Notice then the correspondence of Psalm 112 verse 7 with Psalm 111 verse 7. Watch how these two work together. Look at 111 verse 7. This is describing God. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. So it's no wonder we're not afraid of bad news. Because Psalm 111 verse 7 says that what God does the works of his hands are faithful and just. That in the end, God has the last word. That God is the one writing the ultimate story. And we are captivated and we're captured by who he is. So when we come up against difficulty and pain, our thoughts are on the one who is great and good and near. Our thoughts are not so much on ourselves, but they're on him. And we entrust ourselves wholly to him. Now the second aspect of the fear of the Lord that helps us have this kind of resilience, the second aspect is that the person who walks in the fear of the Lord is becoming increasingly like God. I'm going to say that again and then I got to thread the needle here and be very careful. The person who walks in the fear of the Lord is becoming increasingly like God. Remember Psalm 112 Describing what God is like. And Psalm 111, describing what the person who fears God is like. When you look at these descriptions, there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if you caught that. But there are words used in des to describe human beings, like people like us. There are words used to describe the person who fears the Lord that sound eerily close to a description of God himself. I want you to notice, in Psalm 112, you can look it up later, on two occasions, it says that the person who fears the Lord, that his righteousness endures forever. That's a phrase that's almost exclusively reserved for God in the Bible. What does it mean? Imagine meeting someone and them saying, yeah, my righteousness endures forever. It's like, who are you, bro? Right? His righteousness endures, and yet this is a description of the person who fears the Lord. There are two components to this, so follow closely. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This beautiful verse that describes what Jesus has done. And this is the key to understanding what this is implying, what this is saying. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says, for, God, for our sake, God made him, talking about Jesus, 
to be sin for us. Let me pause there and we'll leave the verse on the screen. God made Jesus to be sin. What does that mean? On the cross, Jesus takes my sin and your sin and it's united to Jesus. Our sin is laid upon Jesus. And he dies as a sacrifice, sacrifice for our sins. Paying the just punishment that our sin deserves. And then three days after his death, he rises up from the grave, defeating death and proving that sin has been paid for. And as a result of Jesus doing that, listen to what the verse then goes to say. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, because of what he's done, God has united us to Jesus. I love how one pastor puts it, Pastor Tim Keller. He says what it means to be united to Jesus, what it means to be in Christ, what this verse is pointing to, is that what's actually of true of Jesus, what's actually true of Jesus, God declares to be legally true of you. That in Christ, you are declared righteous. So when God sees you, and he knows your problems, he knows my problems, he knows your struggles. When he sees you, he sees the perfection of his son. And he treats you and gives you access as his son has access. Jesus, our mediator, has made a way so that God has restored us to himself so that we can be made new, made righteous. And my invitation to those who are listening who have never trusted in Jesus is that today would be the day you put your trust in him. This is his invitation to you to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus, that Jesus did this for you. And so we're declared to be righteous by Jesus, but then don't miss this, the continuing activity of God in our lives as we walk in the fear of the Lord, as this new seed is birthed in us, the continued process is that we become increasingly like God that we start to take on the character of Jesus. Look at first Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, how it puts it. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, His divine power, speaking of God, has granted to us all things that, to, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This, these two verses are describing God's power that is at work in us along with his promises that he has for us. And there's this very peculiar phrase. It's very interesting. Maybe it's stuck out to you. It's worth highlighting in your Bible. It says that he's done this so that through these promises we may become partakers of the divine nature. Think about that for a moment. God, through Jesus, through the promise that is in Jesus, has made a way so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. So that when you go through your darkness, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you face your difficulty, that you, as someone who walks in the fear of the Lord,
can increasingly respond, act, and speak in those moments as Jesus himself would respond, act, and speak if he was in your shoes. Like if he lost that job. If he received that bad report. If he was the one who received the news of someone that he loved that has run away, that has gone astray. This is the promise that we have here. And I want you to think about for a moment, this is, when we look at Jesus' life, this isn't, you know, turning off our emotions or denying them or suppressing them. Think about Jesus. When Jesus received the news that his friend Lazarus had, had been at the point of death, we see in Jesus two things simultaneously that don't make sense. We see in him this calm and steadiness. He finds out his friend is dying and he's calm and steady. He delays his visit. And then when he finally shows up and he's standing at the tomb, he weeps. This isn't him not trusting God. This isn't him somehow exhibiting a lack of trust in God. No, this is Jesus perfectly demonstrating what it means to be a human being at the moment of incredible loss and pain, standing outside of the tomb of a man that he loves, and yet with a steadiness and a resolve. This is the picture we see of Jesus when he's brought before Pontius Pilate, the man who is tasked with judging whether or not Jesus deserves to be crucified. And as Pilate is questioning Jesus, Jesus is silent. Jesus isn't going to speak. There are some times where an answer doesn't need to be given. And Jesus, totally trusting God, doesn't feel like he needs, to, he needs to defend himself. And Pilate says to Jesus, do you have any idea who I am and the authority that I have? I can deliver you over to death. And Jesus, cool as a cat, says, listen, you only have authority that comes from my father. So whatever happens to me is actually going to happen under his plan and purpose. And so there's this steadiness. There's a firmness of heart. There's this resilience. And because of what Jesus has done, he has made that now accessible to us. That though we might not be there yet, that day by day, the person who walks in the fear of the Lord increasingly becomes more and more like Jesus. So I want to just ask you for a moment. I want to ask you in your day, in a typical day of yours, I want you to think and do some self-reflection and just think about how often it is that your mind just starts to get captivated by God. How often does it take place? I don't ask that to beat you up or make you feel bad. It's a question that's convicting for myself. How often do our thoughts just wander towards him? Do we fix our eyes on him? And I, I wonder if sometimes we, you know, there, there may be some of us who, the, the thing that keeps us from walking with this sense of being captivated by God and walking in the fear of the Lord. Some of us, the thing that's standing in our way is there might be some sin in our life, some things that we're doing that are against what God wants for us and he's trying to save us from something. And so our way of walking in the awe of God, the fear of God, needs to start with repentance, turning to God and saying, God, he, I... I admit this is what's going on in my life. I need your help and your grace to walk in the freedom that you have given me. So I honor you with my life. So for some of us, that may be it. But I would be willing to bet 
that for many of us, it, it might not be some specific sin. A lot of times it's just, it's just busyness. It's just the clutter we have in our life. It's just all the attachments that we have. It's our addiction to our phones. It's the instinctual habit of filling in any quiet space with noise. It's like we're uncomfortable with silence. And so we get a quiet moment and we just have this reflex. Let me pull out my phone and see what's happening on the news. Let me pull out my phone and look at what's happening on this app or on that app. Let me fill in this space and we lose and rob ourselves of any type of contemplative space where we can draw our mind to the Lord. And then sometimes we just uh, simply, we just crowd our schedule with maybe some good things, but they may not be the best things. And so to walk in the fear of the Lord, it requires for us to take a realistic look at our lives, to look at what's giving, what we're giving our attention to. And seeing our attention as something to be valued and something to steward and making sure we're creating space to reflect on, to meditate on God's word, to be thoughtful of the Lord. I love this verse from Dallas Willard. This, uh, excuse me, this quote from Dallas Willard uh, from his book, Renovation of the Heart. He talks about how he approaches his day. And he says this, he says, Personally, at the beginning of my day, I commit my day to the Lord's care. I usually do this while meditatively praying through the Lord's Prayer, and possibly Psalm 23 as well. Then, listen to this, I meet everything that happens as sent or at least permitted by God. I meet it resting in the hands of His care. This helps me to do all things without grumbling or disputing, because I have already placed God in charge and am trusting Him to manage them for my good. I no longer have to manage the weather airplanes, and other people. Just think about that simple discipline. To wake up and start your day and trusting yourself to God, saying, God, today you're in charge. This is a broken world, and yet you're at work in it. You love me. And I know that everything that happens today, I'm going to meet that thing knowing that you are in charge, you're in control, that you have brought this or permitted this to come into my life. And that this does not change the fact that you are good. This does not change the fact that you are with me. This does not change any of anything about you. So I trust you. There's something powerful about that that can help set the tone maybe for the rest of our day. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to give you all an assignment this week. Something very practical and simple that you can do. I think in addition to, it'd just be helpful for all of us to just take an attention inventory or do an attention budget. Think about what do I spend my time meditating on, thinking, what's captivating my mind. But something practical we can all do, I want to challenge you to get a piece of paper or a sticky note this week. Get a piece of paper or sticky note and write these three phrases down. He's great. He's good. He's near. Here's what I want you to do with that paper. I want you to set it on top of your phone before you go to sleep. Set it on top of your phone. For many of us, our phone kind of signifies the start of our day, whether you use it for an alarm clock or you grab it when you're about to head out of the house. But start your day so that you can't get to anything else without first reflecting on, he's great, he's good, he's near. And then maybe just kind of pause and sit in that moment. 
and make it your aim, make it your goal that day to be most captivated by him. You know, I shared a while ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, this idea that God made Jesus to be sin for us so that in Jesus we can become the righteousness of God. And I just know there are some of you who are watching or listening that you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to say yes to the invitation that Jesus extends to become one of his mathetes, one of his followers, a disciple of Jesus. He's the rabbi, he's the master, he's the Lord, he's the example, and he's the savior. And he invites you to trust him and follow him. And I want to invite you as we close out our time before we continue in worship and singing, I want to invite you right now in this moment to have a moment of prayer and confess that Jesus is your king and believe that he died for you and he rose for you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I just pray right now that all around the world as people are listening and watching, that you would work in hearts and bring sons and daughters home. Father, I pray right now for those who need to trust in you that this would be their moment. And so if that's you, would you right now, maybe with your head bowed, eyes closed, in a quiet moment between you and God, just say, God, today I believe. Jesus, I confess that you are in charge of my life. You're God. I'm not. And I put my trust in you. I believe you died for me and you rose from the dead. Now help me to spend the rest of my days in awe of you. Father, we love you. Help us to be a people in our uncertain times full of bad news, full of pain, full of hurt, full of brokenness, full of racism, full of all the difficulties that we experience. Lord, would you please enter in and make us a people of peace. Lord, may we be in awe of you. Father, we love you. And with our minds captivated by you, more than anything else that's happening, more than sickness, more than bad news, with our minds captivated, our hearts captivated by you, we offer up this praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to continue to sing now. The band's going to lead us in some songs, but I want to invite those who put their faith in Jesus, those who, for the first time, you said yes and believe that Jesus is your Lord. He's your Savior. I want to invite you to go ahead and go to the link that we have there, cityrev.org slash faith. It's on the bottom of the screen. That's cityrev.org slash faith. Take a few seconds and fill out that form. And by doing that, we, will, we would love to send you a Bible. We want to help you in this journey of following Jesus. It's not meant to be done alone. And so fill that out. We'll connect with you this week and celebrate the greatest moment of your life when you became a child of God. So would you go ahead and join us as we continue our time of worship through song. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.